All right, good morning. I welcome you to Brian Bible Church this morning. Let me remind you, as it's getting closer every day, that the conference is coming up April 19th through 21st, Oceanfront of Virginia Beach. Had an awesome time last year, and I think it's going to be even better this year because this year we're getting together with a lot of people we already know. Last year was like a family coming together we'd never met, and we know a lot of these people now, so it's going to be, I think, even more of an exciting time. So look forward to that. So uh, make your plans to do that. The information's all there on the website. Um, hope to see you all there. Um, those of you who are watching live, it's a great opportunity. And I don't know, Michelle, I don't know if you're watching this year, but, you know, it's not that far from France. You could come and visit with us. It would be great to fellowship with you. <laughs> all right, uh, we are continuing this morning talking about the second coming in Matthew. Um, we're looking, going, just kind of going through Matthew's Gospel and looking at the different timing of the coming of Christ. And I think this is a very important topic because most of churchianity is very confused about what the Bible says about this subject. You know, they just don't get that it could possibly be a past event. Like, it's got to be future because the text says it's future. And... So there's some hermeneutical problems there that they need to overcome and understand what is being said here. Well, so far we looked at Matthew 3, 1 through 11, where John the baptizer comes on the scene after 400 years of silence, and he starts proclaiming that Israel is going to come under judgment. And this judgment he's talking about is the second coming. The Lord is coming in judgment on Israel because of their sin. We looked at Matthew ten twenty three, where Yeshua tells the twelve, that his coming in judgment will be before they have fled, and the idea is they're fleeing, fleeing from persecution to all the cities of Israel. Before you've gone to all the cities of Israel, Son of Man will return. So you're saying, well, that would have to be in their lifetime. I mean, that's a pretty clear reference, right? There's a lot of strong, a lot of very clear time references if your eyes are open to see them. Now, the next verses that we want to look at are kind of important to me. These are the ones that really pushed me over the edge, I guess you could say. Uh, Matthew 16, 27 and 28. Uh, my mother confronted me with these verses. I was over to her house and having dinner and she brought out her Bible and says, i got a question for you. I'm reading and look what this says. She says, what do you think this means? And I had been kind of looking at it myself, and I said, I hate to say this, but I think it means just what it says. And she was like, what? You know, and I said, I know, that's kind of surprising, isn't it? But uh, it says, for the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now, the first question we have to ask is, who is, who is Yeshua talking to here? And if we back up a little bit, we see it says, Then Yeshua said to His disciples, If anyone wishes to come after Me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Me. So Yeshua's audience, in verse 27-28, are His disciples. Now notice the time reference. There are some of those who are standing here. He's talking to people, the guy standing here, who will not taste death, you're not going to die, until you see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. So what's the time reference? When is Yeshua going to come in the glory of His Father? Well, it's within their lifetime. Sometime in their lifetime, He is saying He's going to come back. Now, John MacArthur writes this, that verse could lead you to believe that somewhere in the world are some very old men. Why would it lead you to believe that? And, and I like this because he's literally, he's taking what he said literally. So his option is, he can't have come. So the option two is, there's some really old men. Now, he's not saying that he believes that because he doesn't. He's just saying that could be an option. I have met men who believe that. We had some guys come here and we went to lunch with them after the service and we we're talking to them and, and I confronted him with this verse and I said, you know, you got three choices. You know, Jesus did what He said He's going to do. And these guys are all dead. He returned. Or there's some guys out there walking around 2,000 years old, or Jesus is a liar. I said, which one do you want? He says, 
I think there's some 2,000-year-old disciples out there. I said, really? That's easier for you to buy than just to believe that the Lord did what He said He was going to do. Wow. It's it just, you know, there's people will do anything almost to not change their paradigm. MacArthur goes on to say, what does Christ mean? I believe what Christ was saying can be translated. Some of you standing here will see the Son of Man coming in His royal majesty before you die. Now, is that what Christ said? That's not what He said, okay? He said He's going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels to reward each according to His works. That's speaking of a time of judgment. See, MacArthur sees this as a reference to the transfiguration. Now, the transfiguration took place about a week after Christ uttered these words. So, if it's a week later, and he says to a group of 12, some of you will still be alive. In a week? I hope so. I hope more than some of us are still alive in a week. He didn't say that all of his audience would still be living, or even that a majority of them would still be living. He said some of them. And to use that language to speak of an event that's barely a week away is overkill. The entire reason for using such a, a phrase as some of you standing here will not taste death would be to indicate that the event in question would happen before they all died. Before all of you here die, this will happen. To say that some of them would still be alive in a week is ridiculous. There would be no reason to even say such a thing. The fact the word some indicates the idea that some, even many of those present, are going to die. It's also highly questionable that the transfiguration was in any way Christ coming in the glory of His Father with His angels to reward every man. That can't be referring to the transfiguration. It can't be referring to the transfiguration or Pentecost. But it does refer to His second coming as we see from Revelation 22.12. Behold, I am coming quickly. You know, There's always these time references with the idea of His coming. My reward is with me to render to every man according to what He has done. So He's coming. That's clearly a second coming verse. Nobody questions that. And He's bringing you a reward and He's going to give every man. Now compare that with Matthew 16, 27 where the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels and then He will repay every man according to His deeds. In Revelation, I'm coming quickly. In Matthew, He is about to come. The word come there in Matthew is mellow. It means about to. It indicates nearness of an event. Now, some have tried to water this down by simply saying that mellow is a certainty, but that's a mistake. The original Greek connotation was more than fact-related. There's a sense of proximity here. Notice also that in the lifetime of the disciples to whom Yeshua was speaking, He was going to reward every man. He says in Revelation, my reward is with me to render to every man. He says in, in Matthew 16, we'll then repay every man according to his deeds. Do you see the connection there? I mean, it really doesn't take a rocket science to, scientist to see the connection. Well, when did this happen? Well, it happened at the second coming. We see that in Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in the glory, in His glory, and all His angels with Him. So here we got the glory, we got the angels. Then He's going to sit on His glorious throne. The nations will be gathered before Him. And he will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on the right hand, the goats on the left. The king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the earth. So they're coming, they're inheriting the kingdom. This sounds a lot like 1627. The kingdom is the crown jewel. The new Jerusalem came in its fullness with the passing of the old Jerusalem at the destruction of the temple in AD 70. At this time, the righteous were rewarded and the wicked were judged. Verse 41 says, Then He will also say to those on His left, Depart from Me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So here we have judgment. So throughout Matthew's Gospel, Yeshua continually warned the Jews of this coming judgment because of their apostasy. I believe that most, if not all, of Yeshua's parables deal with the kingdom of God or the destruction of Jerusalem 
because of their rejection of that kingdom. Matthew 21.43 says, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God, he's talking to Jews, will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. It's going to be a judgment. Things are going to be taken away from you. 22.7 says, But the king was enraged and he sent his armies and destroyed those murders and set their city on fire. What's he talking about? There? He's given a parable about the destruction of Jerusalem. This is what's going to happen. And it did happen in AD 70. Look at 23.37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Now by house, he's referring to Jerusalem, and certainly the temple was included. The word desolate here is the Greek word eramos, and it means waste, desert, desolate, wilderness. The city and the temple are destroyed in AD 70. Now you might ask, why would the disciples connect the destruction of the temple with Christ's parousia? Well, they would do that because they knew their Bibles. And they knew that the destruction of Jerusalem was going to usher in the kingdom. Let's go back to Zechariah 14. and Notice the connection here. It says, Behold, the day is coming for the Lord when the spoil shall be taken from you and divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. Here's judgment. The nations are coming against Jerusalem to battle. And the city will be captured. And the houses plundered. The women ravished. Half of the city exiled. That happened in A.D. 70. He goes on to say, But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when He fights on the day of battle. And in that day, His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in the middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. You will flee by the valley of My mountain, for the valley of the mountains will reach Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the day of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all of His holy ones with Him. Here again, we have the destruction of Jerusalem in this text. We have the coming of the Lord with His holy ones and bringing judgment. In the day of the Lord, Jerusalem is destroyed. And He comes with His saints. Also look at Daniel 9.26. And after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. So this city is going to be destroyed. It's a coming time of judgment. And the disciples believe that the coming of Messiah would be simultaneous with the destruction of the city and the temple. His coming was a coming to bring judgment. Now, after pronouncing judgment upon the nation of Israel in the end of Matthew 23, Yeshua and His disciples leave the temple. And as they're walking away, Yeshua tells the disciples that the temple shall be completely destroyed. Look what He says in Matthew 24, 1 and 2. Yeshua came out from the temple and was going away when His disciples came unto Him to point out the temple building and say to Him, He said to them, Do you not see all these things? He's looking at the temple. That's what He's talking about. Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. So they're looking at this marvelous temple, this fortress, and he's telling them this thing's going to be destroyed. And their response is, tell us when will these things happen? And then they say, what will be the sign of your coming? So he's talking about the temple going down. They said, when are you coming? They knew that was connected. And the end of the age. They connected all those things. These are not separate questions that you can divide up into different time events. The disciples had one thing and only one thing on their minds, and that was destruction of the temple, which meant the Lord was coming, which meant the age was ending. They all went together. The Son of Man is going to come, He says. And some of those standing here will not taste death. Now, if you believe the Bible to be the inspired, inerrant, Word of the living God, then this passage gives you a clear either or when determining its fulfillment. Either Christ has fulfilled this passage and His coming has occurred, or else some of that initial audience is still alive. Those are the only two choices, I mean, because if you believe the Bible, you don't believe that Yeshua is a liar, so you've got to take one of those. 
There's no escaping. Anybody familiar with logic knows that when an if statement is encountered, it indicates a split passageway in which one and only one of the results can be followed. In this case, if Christ has not come, then some of the audience must still be alive physically. And conversely, if the entire audience has physically died, then Christ has had to have come to fulfill this verse. If Christ was true to His Word, then there's no other alternative here. There can be no splitting of the pieces or parts or say this happened here and that's going to happen later. No, He made it really clear. He's talking about a second coming and you guys will be, some of you will still be around when it happened. So it had to happen in their lifetime. Now, our next time text is found in Yeshua's Sermon on the Mount of Olives, commonly known as the Olivet Discourse. And in this discourse, Yeshua is answering the questions that the disciples asked him, again back to Matthew 24, 1 and 2, about the, Mount of, about the end of the destruction of the temple. And after pronouncing judgment on the nation, as he did in the end of 23, he's pronouncing all this judgment, they leave the temple as they're leaving, the disciples point out this building, and he talks about the destruction of that building. And he says, Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left upon another that is not thrown down. And the disciples say, When? When's this going to happen? What is the sign of your coming? Again, they, they connected those things. They viewed the destruction of the temple, the parasy of the end of the age, as synchronous events. Their question basically is twofold When will these things happen, and what signs will indicate it's about to happen? And then in verses 4 through 51, Yeshua answers their questions. And please keep in mind as you read this, he is answering their question about his coming. And we get to verse 34. We just want to focus on this verse. He says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, if this language doesn't mean that all things he spoke of are near, it doesn't mean anything. Let's back up one verse to 33. He says, So you too, when you see all these things, recognize. That He is near, right at the door. Our text says He is near in the parallel passage in Luke says, so also when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Same thing. He is near. He's bringing the kingdom. Now in our text in Matthew 24-33, He's referring to the full manifestation of the kingdom that would come in power and glory at 80-70. So Yeshua is saying that the kingdom of God is near now look at the next verse, 30, 34. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now three questions need to be answered here to understand this little verse. First of all, who is Yeshua talking to? Who's the you? We've got to answer that question. We need to know who he's talking to. Secondly, what exactly does generation mean? And thirdly, what does all these things refer to? Well, the first question is, Truly I say to you, who's the you? Well, we already know who that is because we looked at Matthew 24, right? Yeshua's talking to his disciples. They asked the question. He's answering the question. Truly I say to you. You can't say it to anybody else than the people he's talking to. That's who he's talking to. All right? He's answering their question. The next question is, what does all these things refer to? Well, it refers to everything that he's been talking about since verse 4. He told him a number of things were going to happen before the end came. He said the gospel would be preached in all the world, verse 14. And people say, that hasn't happened. We're going to get that. Pat Robertson down the road here, he's making that happen. All right? He's still getting out there and proclaiming the gospel so the Lord can come back. But the scriptures tell us the gospel was preached in the first century to all the world. He also told them they'd see the abomination of desolation that Daniel spoke of. And Luke tells us that refers to the Roman army surrounding Jerusalem. They saw that. He also told them there would come a time of great tribulation in verse 21. That immediately after the tri tribulation, they would see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. He says this, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. So they're going to see the Son of Man coming on these clouds. Now Yeshua here very plainly and very clearly tells His disciples that all the things He had been talking about in 24 would come to pass in their lifetime. 
This is so clear that it troubles those who hold to a futuristic eschatology. If they're honest, it really troubles them. Listen to some comments made on this verse. First of all, the famous one by C.S. Lewis. He says, The apocalyptic beliefs of the first Christians have been proved to be false. It is clear from the New Testament that they all expected the second coming in their own lifetime. See, that's, that's clear. That, he's right there. They did expect that. They all expected it. I expected it. When I became a Christian, got my Bible, I said, I'll start at Matthew. I skipped the first three quarters of the book. But I started at Matthew and I started reading. I got this soon, quickly, short. And I thought, man, he's coming quick. We got to get ready. We had our first child and I said, she'll never reach school age. After she got in her 20s, I started thinking, you know, I don't know what's, something's happening here. I must mis- be misreading this. But, you know, that's the problem. You, you know, they had that expectation because it's there. Well, Lewis goes on to say, and worse still, they had a reason, and one which you will find very embarrassing. Their master had told them so. He shared and indeed created their delusion. He said in so many words, this generation shall not pass away till all these things be done. And he was wrong. Referring to the Lord. He said the Lord was wrong. He created their delusion and he was wrong. He clearly knew no more about the end of the world than anyone else. This is certainly the most embarrassing verse in the Bible. I think this is from the world's last night found in the Essentials of C.S. Lewis, page 385. And this is the most embarrassing paragraph in Christian literature. I mean, for a man to take that stand, you know, because of his physical view of the nature of the second coming, he felt that it hadn't happened. And therefore, the only other conclusion is Yeshua had to be wrong. Listen, that fact would be much more than embarrassing. It would be devastating. If Yeshua is wrong about that, what else is he wrong about? When he said, you know, all those who believe in him would have everlasting life, was he right there? Or was that wrong also? Where do we stop with this? Yeshua wasn't wrong. It's Lewis that was wrong. We can count on the truthfulness of what Yeshua says, and I'm glad of that. And that's one thing that, that is so encouraging to me about preterism is you can just take the Lord at his word. You don't have to twist it. You don't have to distort it. You don't have to do it. He said he was coming. You can believe that. And you can go with it from there. Others also had trouble with this verse. The New Jerome Commentary says, this is a troublesome verse. Robertson Nicole says this, what is said therein is so perplexing as to tempt a modern expositor to wish it had not been there. <coughs> Excuse me. Or to have recourse to critical expedience to eliminate it from the text. Yeah, I wish I could get rid of this some way. I wish there was some textual criticism, something that would say we could just take this verse out of here. It doesn't fit their eschatology, so they just say we got to eliminate this. You wonder, did they ever consider maybe my eschatology is wrong? This verse is devastating to a futuristic eschatology. So let's look at it carefully and make sure we understand what Yeshua is saying. The last question that we really need to understand is... What exactly does generation mean? Generation in our text from, comes from the Greek word genea. And genea, by implication, means an age. In Thayer's Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament, it says genea means the whole multitude of men living at that time. Aren't Gingrich, the Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament, defined genea as... Basically, the sum of those born at the same time, expanded to include all those living at a given time, contemporaries. I think we understand generation to mean that. Now, if you look at the way Yeshua used the word, this is the etymology of the word. But if you look at the usage of the word, I think it's abundantly clear that he always refers to his contemporaries, Jewish people to whom he's talking to. Let's look at just a few of the verses. Matthew 23, he says, So that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Bechariah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, 
All these things will come upon this generation. Yeshua is in the temple speaking to the Jews, and he says that all the judgment that he's been speaking about is going to come upon them. Now, I don't know of any commentator who understands this as referring to anything other than the existing generation. That's clear. Look at Luke 17. For just like the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in His day. But first, He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Now, what generation did Christ suffer many things from and what generation rejected Him? Some future generation? No, His generation. That's really clear. He's speaking there of His contemporaries. Now, look how some of the translations deal with Matthew 24, 34. The New English Bible. I tell you this. The present generation will live to see it all. That's clear, right? Today's English version. Remember this. All these things will happen before the people now living have all died. Moffat's translation. I tell you truly, the present generation will not pass away till all this happens. Weymouth. I tell you in solemn truth that the present generation will certainly not pass away until all this has taken place. See, these translations make it quite clear. The meaning of the word, you know, that was their present generation in the time of Christ. Not a future generation, not something thousands of years off. So in the etymology and the usage, generation means those born at the same time, contemporaries. Now some will say the generation that sees these signs will not pass away. But see, that's adding words to the text that's not there. Yeshua uses the near demonstrative, this generation. And every time this is used in the New Testament, it's always referring to something that is near in terms of time or distance. If I said to you, this building is going to be destroyed. You say, what building? I said, this building. What building are you in? This building. Now, if I said to you, that building is going to be destroyed, then you could say, what building? Because it's that. I'm not in that building. But if I say this, you know I'm talking about this. We're right here. We're in it. Yeshua could have said that generation. He could have used that if he wanted to say that. But he didn't. He is saying that everything that he has spoken about will happen before the generation that he was speaking to would pass away, including the Great Tribulation and the Second Coming. Now, Another question we need to ask is, how long is a generation? Well, John Walvoord, who stretches a generation further than anybody that I know, says a generation is normally from 30 to 100 years. He's the only one I know that would give it that broad a span. But most commentators see a generation referring to about a 30 to 40 year period of time. But more important than that, what's the Bible say about a generation? Well, if you look at Matthew 1.17, it says, so... All the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Messiah are 14 generations. So in this geological table, we have data to estimate the length of a generation. It tells us that from the captivity of Babylon until Christ are 14 generations. Now the date of the captivity in the reign of Zedekiah is said to be at 586 B.C. So from 586 B.C. until the birth of Christ is about... 586 years. You don't need a whole lot of math to figure that out. All right. Which divided by 14 makes the average length of a generation about 41 years. Now, this is confirmed in Hebrews 3, 8 through 10. It says, Do not harden your hearts as when they provoke me, as in the trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, They do always go astray in their heart. They did not know my way. So, 40 years... That's a really significant number in the Bible. Children of Israel wander in the wilderness for 40 years before entering the promised land. The New Testament saints also were in a transition period for 40 years before entering the new Jerusalem, which is above. David reigned for 40 years, and I believe that Christ's reign from Pentecost to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 was a 40-year reign, which Revelation 20 refers to as the millennial reign of Christ. Now, some have tried to twist the etymology of the word generation in Matthew 24, to make it mean race. I mean, you know, when you're confronted with these verses, if you're really honest, you say, well, that's clearly saying something I don't like. So i got to make it say something else. You know, 
it's like they don't ever think about, maybe my theology is wrong. The text has to be wrong. We've got to twist the text. We've got to make it say something else. They try to make Yeshua say things that, you know, like things like it will happen before the race of all the Jews passed away. And by doing this, they think they can expand the time of the second coming for thousands of years. Well, there's no biblical or linguistic justification for such a precision. Generation does not mean race. Now, C.I. Schofield, who you probably know was not a preterist, in his Bible's reference to this verse in Matthew 24, 34, he recognized this and he actually, listen, he switched the definition of the word from that of genea, which is the word there, to that of genos, an entirely different word. The Schofield Reference Bible, the old edition, now they've corrected this, but the old edition on page 1034 says this, genea, the primary definition of which is race, kind, family, stock, breed, so all lexicons. This is totally deceptive. The definition he gives here is for the Greek word genos, not genea. Genos means race. Genea, that he's saying, he's saying the words genea, but he gives genos as definition. I mean, that's just totally deceptive. And then he puts in little so-all lexicons. You can't find one lexicon that will give you that. But see, they just count on people being dumb. They just count on people not looking stuff up. And therefore, they get away with it. And most people, if it's in the Schofield Bible, it's the Word of God because it's in the Bible. You know, right there, the notes are right in with it all. He goes on to say this. That the word is used in this sense here is sure. Why is it sure? Because all lex can prove. No. He says, because none of these things, the worldwide preaching of the kingdom, the great tribulation, the return of the Lord, invisible glory, and the regathering of his elect occurred at the destruction of Jerusalem by Titus in AD 70. Those things didn't happen, so that can't be the right word. Can't be the right meaning. See, he doesn't think these things happen, so he changes the meaning of the word. He goes, the promise is, therefore, that the generation, nation, or family of Israel will be preserved until these things, a promise wonderfully fulfilled to this day. Now, again, he's ignorant on this count because there's not a Jewish race today. The Jewish race has disappeared after AD 70. No more genealogical records. There's people who call themselves Jews. They are not bloodline Jews anymore. It's gone. It's wiped out. He was wrong. And he just literally twisted things to defend his position. He did it because of his view of the nature of the second coming. He felt that these things had to happen, so he changed the meaning of a word. The following quote by David Chilton is, I think, very informative. He says, Some have sought to get around the force of this text. He's talking about Matthew 24:34 by saying that the word generation here really means race. And that Jesus was simply saying that the Jewish race would not die out until all these things take place. Is that true? He says, I challenge you. I love a challenge. Get out your concordance and look up every New Testament occurrence of the word generation in Greek, genea, and see if it ever means race in any other context. Not one of the references is speaking of the entire Jewish race over thousands of years. All use the word in its normal sense of the sum total of those living at the same time, it always refers to contemporaries. In fact, those who say it means race tend to acknowledge this fact, now watch this, but explain that the word suddenly changes its meaning when Jesus uses it in Matthew 24. In other words, you read the commentaries, they all say, yeah, it means contemporary, it means contemporary. Every place in the Bible means contemporary, but here. And no reason for it other than it just doesn't fit. See, when Yeshua said all these things would occur before the generation was over, he was talking about everything he had been discussing from verse 4 through verse 33. This includes the second coming in power and glory. The disciples' question had been, when will your parousia be? In verse 34, he tells them, in your generation. It was all to happen while some of the folks to whom he preached were still alive. 
just as he said that it would in Matthew 10, 23 and in 16, 27, 28. Now, there's one other verse in Matthew, I think, that gives us a time reference to the second coming. So let's look at that one. In Matthew 26, 63 and 64. And remember, we're just done Matthew so far. You know, we go to Mark, Luke, and we go through the whole Bible and do all these. You know, time references, there's a whole ton of them, and they're very important. But Yeshua kept silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure thee by the living God, that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Yeshua said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So he says, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you. Who's the you? Who's he talking to? Well, in verse 63, it says the high priest who at that time was Caiaphas. So Caiaphas asked Yeshua if he is the Son of God, the Messiah, and Yeshua answers Caiaphas by saying that he, Caiaphas, will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, coming in the clouds of heaven. Now, if Caiaphas saw this, as Yeshua said he would, then it must have happened in his lifetime, unless you want to have Caiaphas still living too today. Maybe the Caiaphas and the disciples are hanging out together, <coughs> hanging on, waiting for the Lord to fulfill His word. Now, notice the similarities between Yeshua's answer to Caiaphas and what He said in Matthew 24, 30, where He says, And the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Yeshua told Caiaphas, You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. He said to His disciples, And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. He told Caiaphas, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. He told His disciples, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. It's obvious the same event in both passages. Now notice Caiaphas' response to Yeshua's statement. Then the high priest tore his robe, and he said, He has blasphemed. What further need do we need of witnesses? Behold, you have heard the blasphemy. What did Yeshua say that was blasphemy? Well, Caiaphas understood that Yeshua was claiming to be the Messiah. See, in order to understand what Yeshua is saying, we need to understand the idea behind the coming in clouds. God's coming on the clouds of the sky is a symbolic way of saying His presence is there. He is coming in judgment, or He is coming in salvation. See, all through the First Testament, and that's the background for this, you know, when these guys are writing this in Matthew, it's not like they just said, let's make up a good phrase. Coming in the clouds, that sounds good. No, that's, they got it from the, first, from the prophets. That's where it came from. So if we go back to the First Testament, and we look at how this is used, and Isaiah 19.1, just as an example, but remember that this is what they're drawing on. They're drawing on the prophets. Isaiah says, the oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud. So do you got a picture in your mind when you see that? When you see this big guy with like clouds on his feet and he's kind of surfing? You know, I mean, you get a mental image of God coming on the cloud. That's what people think of Jesus. You know, this 90-foot Jesus coming down in the sky on a cloud. You know, like he's surfing with a cloud for the surfboard. He says, the Lord is riding a swift cloud. He's about to come to Egypt. That's where he's coming. The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence. Oh, he's going to be there? We're going to have his presence there? And the heart of the Egyptians will melt with them. So what's he talking about here? Well, we know from Isaiah 20 that God used the Assyrians as instruments of his wrath on Egypt. But the text says the Lord's riding a swift cloud. Egypt will tremble at his presence. His presence was made known in judgment. Listen, it was the Assyrians who were literally present. There was no physical manifestation of God there. They knew this language is talking about judgment. God came how? He used the Assyrians. His presence was in the Assyrians. They were carrying out His will. So He came in the cloud. He came in a judgment cloud. His presence was there. So when Yeshua said He would come in the clouds, He's using this apocalyptic language of the prophets 
to identify himself as the Messiah, the judge. And Caiaphas reacted the way he did because he knew that only God comes on the clouds. Yeshua is claiming to be deity. He knew that Yeshua was claiming to be the Messiah of Daniel chapter 7. Now, if the Lord's teaching on His second coming doesn't agree with our concept of the second coming, what do we do? That's the best thing to do. Just change your theology. You know, the sad thing is, the way Christians work it is we get a theology, and then we read the Bible and we try to find things that, make, that fit our theology. And then we build it, and the verses that don't fit, we kind of just, you know, let's eliminate those, or don't mark them, pretend they're not there, don't worry about it. They'll, the way to do it is just go through the Bible and find what the Bible teaches, and then build your theology on that. And when your theology disagrees, throw your theology out, because it's not inspired, only the Word of God is. And just build it on the Word. You say, well, I have to keep changing. Yeah, that's what it's all about. I, to me, that's what growth is about. That's what studying is about. You don't start out with it all right. I start out with everything wrong. I believe everything opposite of what I believe now at one point in time. And as I studied, I had to keep throwing stuff out, throwing stuff out. I'm like, wow, this is a lot of work here. And I'll tell you what, you know, verse by verse teaching is one of the most dangerous things you can do if you like your theology. Because it'll change it. You'll come across verses and you just, you know, that doesn't fit. So, figure it out. Destroy, you know, throw that theology out again because it's not inspired. We need to change our concepts and we need to line up with the teaching that is clearly in the Word of God. It's the Word of God. That's the thing. You know, to study the Bible, if you're going to study the Bible, you might as well believe what it says. If you're not going to believe it, then don't even bother wasting your time. You know, lining up under it. I know sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes, you know, dearly held views and, you know, precious verses that we hang on to don't even mean anything near what we think they mean. And it's yeah, sometimes it's disappointing, but... Let's find out what they really mean and then let's cling to them. You know, instead of making it into a Ouija board. It's the Word of God. Let's don't twist it and distort it. Let's just submit to it. No matter where it leads. If you're willing to do that, God will teach you. But you've got to be willing to go where it leads. It's not about, you know, your views. It's about what is this book teaching. So, the preterist view holds to the principle that all prophecy was fulfilled in the destruction of the temple which happened in the lifetime of the generation to which Yeshua spoke. We live, we live in what the Bible calls the age to come. We live in the heavenly Jerusalem. We live in the new heavens and the new earth, which is the new covenant, according to Galatians 4. And understanding this is crucial to correctly interpreting the New Testament. Because if you don't know what time it is, you can't interpret the Bible correctly. You're going to be constantly looking for things that are past, constantly getting yourself on a timeline that's way off, and missing what you already have, which is a sad place to be. It was fulfilled, and we live in the fullness of the kingdom. All the blessings are ours in Christ Jesus. We have 24-7 access to the Father, the Son, the Spirit. We dwell in His presence. We're not looking for something else. We're not hoping for something else. We've got it right now. We just need to learn to enjoy it. And what happens at death? Not much. <laughs> not much. People around you miss you, but that's about, that's about the only thing that really happens. You know, you move on into the realm of the presence of God in, in a manifestation that I, I can't even begin to understand. And I'll tell you what, the Bible speaks very, very little about heaven. And I'm convinced it's because we couldn't grasp it. There's just no way to understand this concept. I don't understand being without a body. I've never been without one. So I don't understand that concept. But God is incorporeal. He's a spirit. Angels are spirits. Yeshua said, we'll be like the angels. That's the only thing I really know that it tells us about heaven. You see, most people's view of heaven is not heaven at all. It's the new covenant they're talking about. And they take all new covenant verses, and I got streets of gold and all this cool stuff, and that's you got that now. See, you're waiting for something. So it's important that we just listen, whatever it is, and whatever the subject, whether it be, you know, eschatology or soteriology or whatever it is, we just have to let the Bible speak 
and line up under it. You know, as David talked this morning in uh, for Lord's Supper, I know a lot of you are like, boy, you just destroyed my concept of Christmas. Well, you know, <laughs> this is what the text teaches. We have to line up with the text, not the little fairy tales we've heard all our life. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to look at your word. But thank you for the grace you've given us in this time period in which we live with so much at our disposal to understand this teaching of your word. Father, I pray you'd give us the heart of Bereans. May we all be willing to move away traditions that don't fit with Scripture. Move away our preciously held ideas if they don't fit with your Scripture. And desire only to line up with the truth of your word. Thank you for the grace you've given us, for the eyes to see that you've given us. May we honor you, Lord, through the lives we live. In the name of Yeshua we pray. Amen. Any questions this morning? You know, I, I don't know. That, that's a good question. Does the persecuted church, I think for the most part, the persecuted church is futuristic. You know, they're looking for a relief from this persecution by, uh, you know, a coming, I'm, I'm sure. Um, so, but they get a lot of things we don't get. The main thing they get that we don't get is that the gospel is not a health-wealth gospel. You know, they, they don't have a conflict with loving God, God loving you, and being absolutely miserable and suffering. They don't, there's no conflict with that. They're like, this is, this is how the New Testament lays it out. You know? I mean, Paul, probably the greatest Christian ever lived, one of the people who suffered. You know, five times I received 39 lashes. Five times. I, I give one lash. I'm okay. I'll keep my mouth shut. I won't talk anymore. Leave me alone. I promise. I mean, to beat, you know, to get 39 lashes would just about take your life away. To go through it five times. When he says, I bear in my body the marks of Christ, when he says that, that's not figurative. His body was deformed. And Paul didn't have a contradiction. He didn't see a contradiction there. God loved me. He was convinced of that. And so he went on, I'm. Glad to suffer for Christ. And I think that so many Christians around the world feel that same way too. Even though I think they're, you know, a lot of their views of texts are off, you know, but they have a connection with the Lord that, you know, we trust Him and we don't see a conflict. Whereas American Christianity is a huge conflict with persecution, suffering, pain, and Christianity. They just don't fit. Well, you know, they were blinded, and I think part of the, a lot of their blindness was they were looking for something that was never promised. To them, their whole focus was physical. We want someone to defeat Rome. We're under Rome, Roman domination. We want someone to beat up the Romans, to get us free. You know, just like in John 8 when they said, we've never been in bondage to any man. They're like, what's wrong with you people? You've always been in bondage your whole life. You've been in bondage to someone. They didn't see it. And so they look, they're looking for this. And when Christ comes on the scene, if he'd have you know, raised up an army, they'd have been all for him. They'd have stood behind him and yeah, yeah, let's go get him. But he kept saying, you know, my kingdom's not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight. And so they're like, we don't want that nonsense. We don't want some spiritual stuff. You know, we want to take over. And so I think they missed it. And I think the church is exactly the same today. We don't want that spiritual coming thing. You know, we're now we're in his presence. We don't want that. We want him to physically, you know, touch down on earth and make it a paradise for all of us. Yes. In Acts 1, 11, he said, you know, he talks about, you know, the, why, why you gaze up into heaven? This same Jesus will come in like manner, he says, as you've seen him go. And the like manner, I think, you, they saw him disappear in the clouds, you know, which is really in, in Acts 1, 11, he's using temple terminology of the high priest. He went in, when he went into the Holy of Holies, he went into a cloud of incense, a cloud of smoke. And this idea, he went with the clouds, he's coming back with the clouds. When people say it's got to be the exact same way, he went up, he's come back. Well, then you get to Revelation 20, he's on a white horse. With a sword coming out of his mouth. Now, is he on a cloud or is he on a horse? How, you know, and then there's all these different, so it's figurative language, you know, speaking not in exact, you know, it's going to happen this exact same way. And he says those people who saw him go would see him come. Not some people 2,000 years later would see him come. You know, they would see him come. And again, it's the, the concepts that we have have to be formed from the First Testament prophets. Not our idea of what this is. See, you know, most people see that and they think of clouds as a big white puppy cloud. He went away, he's floating back down on the cloud. 
That's, again, that's temple language. And if you don't understand what's going on in the temple, then you miss the whole thing. He went into the temple in that cloud. He's coming back out in that cloud. And he's coming out for judgment. Does that help? Okay, the question is about Satan. If he's cast into the pit, if he's gone, whatever, then why do we have evil in this age? Well, I think, you know, I'd like to answer that by saying, do we have, is there still... Um, the influence of Adolf Hitler and the skinheads and the neo-Nazi movement, is it still here? Well, Hitler's dead. Okay, I don't think anybody's going to argue that, but the influence is still there. And I think, you know, evil is just part of who we are. We are evil, okay? You know, when we're saved, you know, I think you know that there's a battle still going on there. You want to, you know, you're just, it's within you. And I think that's man. That's just who man is. And James says every man is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. He doesn't blame the devil. He says you're drawn away of your own lust. You have these lusts and that's what, you know, so I don't think we need the devil for all the evil that goes on in the world. I I really don't. And uh, I think man is plenty evil in and of himself without, you know, I mean, there's plenty of times I'm amazed at myself. Like, Wow, I'm really evil. You know, why do I think that? Why do I want to do, you know, I mean, it's, you know, so... It's not a surprise to me. I don't, I don't really think we need him. I think, you know, the devil was connected with the old covenant and was done away at that time. And we really don't particularly need him. And I heard a, just as a positive step on that, uh, when I was sharing this with a, another couple, that was the lady's first question, their first introduction to preterism. She looked at me when I got done. She goes, what about the devil? He's gone. I said, he's toast. She came to me about two months later and said, you know, I cannot tell you how much better my life is now. She goes, because I was blaming everything on the devil. And if you blame it on the devil, I can't do anything about it. When you told me the devil's gone, I had to take personal responsibility for this stuff and I had to change some things. And she goes, it's incredible. I was blaming him and it was me. Now I'm better. And I'm like, yeah, you know, because if, if something is your fault, you can fix it. But somebody else's fault, you can't do anything about it. So I just, when she told me that, I just had to smile. I thought, that's incredible. That's true, you know. Because I, I never was in that category of blaming the devil for everything. But some people, you know, especially charismatics, they really get in there and everything is the devil's fault, you know. So, all right, I'll tell you what, let's close. Uh, Kath, come on up here and let's all stand together and let's sing together, Shine, Jesus, Shine. You know, I think we have to understand this this verse, this song as... The way the Lord shines is through us. As we share the knowledge of God to the world, as we live in a way that brings Him glory, He is shining through our lives.